Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Over the last decade or so, an anti-porn and anti-masturbation movement has been picking up steam on social media. From Reddit to Twitter to TikTok, there's a barrage of posts and videos extolling the supposed health benefits of abstinence while decrying the harms of porn and self-pleasure. This has fueled the rise of an entire industry centered around promoting masturbatory abstinence, often referred to as a reboot. These programs encourage men to zip it up and forego self-pleasure and orgasm for prolonged periods of time, which they say is necessary in order to reset their brains and boost testosterone, among other things. But do these programs work as advertised? This is the second installment in a four-part series on the science of porn. Today, we're going to go inside the world of porn addiction recovery programs. My guest has studied the experiences of hundreds of men who have tried them out, and the results paint a pretty bleak picture. Reboots don't seem to be all that effective in accomplishing their goals, and in fact, may actually be causing harm and taking a toll on men's mental health. So let's dive into the data. Dr. Nicole Prowsey is back on the show today to walk us through her reboot research. Nicole is a licensed psychologist and sex researcher who founded the sexual biotechnology company Liberos. She is a former Kinsey Institute trainee and has published an extensive body of research on the neuroscience and psychophysiology of sex. She is currently a scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles in the Department of Medicine and will be giving the keynote address this year for the Association for the Treatment and Prevention of Sexual Abuse annual conference. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the newly opened Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus, which is open to the public from 9.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. You can also find two Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Wilsig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org. Okay, Nikki, as you and I both know, social media is full of posts and videos declaring that both porn and masturbation are harmful and encouraging people, particularly men, to abstain. And they argue that abstinence is necessary because porn and masturbation can shrink your penis, can cause erectile dysfunction, make you less of a man, among many other things. Now, posts like this have been going around the socials for years, but they seem to be increasing. So why do you think that is? Where is this rise in anti-porn and anti-masturbation sentiment coming from? 
Historically, there had been two groups that tended to collaborate in this space, and there are a few papers written about this. These are religious groups and anti-porn feminists. So feminists tend to be divided on the porn topic. Some think it's empowering and useful for women. Uh, others think that it's disempowering and abusive of women. And so the feminists and religious groups who tend to have nothing in common had something in common, and they work together on these issues. But what's been different in the last 10 years is the monetization of this feeling that pornography must be bad or must be pathological. So now we have a third group that's come in that says, I can make money off this. You know, I can offer to treat someone. I can tell them it's doing all these terrible things to them. If only you give me money, I can help you stop. I can help you find a path forward that will restore your masculinity or that will allow you to be a man. And that's my sense of the biggest change has been these groups that say, hey, feminists, hey, church groups, we'll help you out. We'll come with you. And they explicitly talk at their conferences and the you know, one promotes the other and posts fundraisers and for the groups that are looking to profit. So they have this unique kind of shared motive. And I think that's part of what's been shaping the more recent, potentially more violent rhetoric around the anti-pornography movement, because now you're threatening someone's livelihood, not just their religion, not just their social belief that it may harm women, but now you're taking away their job if you make those statements. So I think that's been part of what's really shaped the rhetoric more recently. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's a very complex phenomenon in terms of why this is happening. And I think it's interconnected with a whole bunch of other things that are going on in society at the same time. You know, this is also during the rise of incels. You know, a lot of men who are involuntarily celibate, they want to have sexual and romantic relationships, but can't seem to find them. And so they might misattribute their problems and connecting with other people to pornography and masturbation. So that could be feeding into some of this as well. Also with just social media more generally, it's so much easier to find misinformation and, you know, and for that to spread and go viral and all that stuff. And You know, I get emails from people who see stuff on social media all the time asking me if it's true. Actually, right before this podcast, I got an email from someone asking me about semen retention, right? And, you know, this idea, this is something that goes around on TikTok that like you need to keep your semen, you know, like it's this vital bodily fluid. And if you expend it, it's going to, you know, have damaging health effects. And I find it so fascinating that this idea is going around now because back in like the 1800s, you know, people used to talk about how one ounce of semen was equivalent to like a pint of blood. And so every time you ejaculated, you were killing yourself, you know, you're taking away your life force. And, you know, that idea went away, but now it's come back. It's it's so fascinating to look at kind of this evolution and sexual attitudes and beliefs and also that role that social media is playing in it. Absolutely. I, that was a, my thought. And sometimes when people say, you know, how did this happen? How did we get here? And I think a lot of the anti-masturbation rhetoric had fallen out of fashion when churches tried to promote this. It was seen as silly and outdated, but this new rhetoric around pornography has allowed us to reshame masturbation. You know, we can now say it's bad for you and here come the semen retention guys. <laughs> and suddenly we're right back where we started, which is unfortunate. But I'm not sure exactly you know, how we got there, but my sense is there's still some anti-masturbation rhetoric that underlies a lot of the anti-pornography. Yeah, absolutely. And because pornography and masturbation are so interconnected, you know, when people are watching porn, they're typically masturbating, right? They're 
inherently interlinked oftentimes in the way that people are thinking about them and, and talking about them. Now, the largest online abstinence group follows this concept called rebooting, which you recently studied. But before we get into your research, what do people mean when they use the term reboot and what might a typical reboot program look like? Rebooting usually refers to some period of abstinence from masturbation and sometimes also pornography during which they expect to experience a number of health benefits. And at the end of this period of abstinence, they believe that they will be reset, hence the term reboot, back to their original healthy state that was prior to masturbating or prior to viewing pornography. I don't know a lot more than that in terms of the the number of days that you have to remain abstinent is not clear. We studied that a little bit. The exact behaviors that are counted as violating that or not violating it are not consistent. We studied that a bit. So in general, that's the broadest (laughs) way I can kind of define what a reboot is. Yeah. And, you know, one way that this sometimes pops up is there's this idea called NoFap November that was started, I believe, on Reddit somewhere around a decade or so ago. And it was kind of like this anti-masturbation challenge for the month of November. And, you know, it's been going on every year since. And, you know, that's like for a month, people will give up all masturbation and porn. Sometimes it's all orgasms of any kind, including partnered sex. So, you know, there's variability in how these things play out. But the basic idea is that you are abstaining for a certain period of time. Now, what do we know about who signs up for these reboot programs? I mean, we know it's almost universally men, but what about things like age and sexual orientation? You know, who's the target audience for a reboot? It's interesting. I don't know of any nationally representative samples of these folks, so it's difficult to say what broad percentage. Absolutely, it's overwhelmingly men. They say women are also welcome, but I very rarely (laughs) see women posting or female-identified posting. And the age we think is fairly young, but we have an interesting challenge in that with sex research, we're typically not allowed to study children. And so we need to remove them from our data set when we look at these forums or invite people to surveys. And it seems that rules out a lot of folks. So in some of the forums we study, we've seen people saying they're 10 years old, a lot of folks saying they're 11 years old. So it seems like there's a mix of youth put in with adults talking about sexual topics, which is hugely problematic. So we don't know how they actually skew because I can't talk to the kids. I'm not allowed to (laughs) by our institutional review boards. And the backgrounds, people tend not to be LGBT because the viewing homosexual content in pornography is often viewed as an escalation and something to be avoided. So they talk about, you know, how to get you off of sissy porn is a big one. You know, that if you're looking at this particular type of content, then you've escalated. And that's kind of how they view a lot of the homosexual content. So again, they say it's okay. They say we don't discriminate. This is not a problem. You do occasionally see people posting who say they're LGBT identified. And yet the rhetoric around it is, if you're viewing that, we can help you stop. It really has a flavor of conversion therapy. Yeah. So interesting and also so troubling that children are accessing these forms and that's like the first thing that they're learning about sex and masturbation and so forth and you can imagine how that could have potentially long-term damaging effects on these individuals if that's the only message that they're exposed to from the time that they're like literally going through puberty 
Now, you published a study recently looking at the effects of participating in one of these reboot programs. But before we get into the results, please tell us first who you got to participate in the study and the kinds of questions you asked them about. We wanted to reach out to people who were familiar with the reboot approach because we know not everyone has heard of that or would know what it was. Um, We also limited it to men, not because I like excluding women, but because you always worry if there's a very small sample that you might misrepresent that particular sample. So we said, rather than trying to characterize all women who might participate in this, we're going to limit it to men at this time. And we also wanted to get people who might have positive or negative experiences. So we really tried to reach out to forums that might have had both impressions of reboots. So that includes Reddit and Discord and Twitter accounts that are both promoting these. So Reboot Nation, NoFap on Reddit, Twitter, and their website. Also LGBT forums that we thought might have had more negative experiences. And I said, I think we did a good job because at some point both groups cried conspiracy and said we were the other group (laughs) in our efforts. (laughs) So we even got a unique exception from the Institutional Review Board to use an LLC as the principal investigator of the study to avoid people seeing my name attached to it and think, oh, you know, this is, I'm not going to do this. We're going to skew it this way or we're going to ruin her study because I know there's antagonism. And that seemed to be helpful. People really didn't know who was behind it, even though it wasn't our intention to be deceptive, we just didn't want the bias. We were trying to get as clean a picture as we could. So I think we did a reasonable job of representing people who may have had negative or positive experiences. That's so interesting. And, you know, increasingly scientific surveys are being conducted online because it's much easier to collect your data that way and you can access a more diverse population for your participants, but it does create some problems in terms of if if this is a link that anyone can access, there can be bots that will come in that can mess with your survey, people who come in who just want to throw off your results. And so you really have to be careful when you're doing online research to build in checks for these kinds of things. And I've just noticed it's become a much bigger problem over time. You know, I started conducting online research circa 2003, 2004, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years and it wasn't that big of a problem at the time. You know, we still built in checks to look for like duplicate IP addresses and, you know, you would have a couple of those things that popped up, but now it's just, sometimes it's a massive problem in certain surveys. So online research and doing it well is much harder than you might think it is. Yeah, and I would caution researchers who want to come into this space, you're, you're welcome, please come in. But also, this group in particular, the NOFAP, for example, will post scientific surveys and tell their members to go and answer in a particular way. I've seen that in at least three separate studies now on their forums. So they are gaming our <laughs> surveys and trying to make them look certain ways. So we need to really, really, as researchers, be alert and be actively looking to see how our research is getting disseminated in those groups if you're doing online work. Yeah. And this is not to say that you can't trust the results or the work when you're doing an online survey. It's just you have to be very careful in how you design it and the types of checks and balances that you put into it to make sure that you're actually getting quality data. So one of the things you looked at in this study was how many rebooters experienced a relapse. So what does a relapse mean in the context of rebooting? And was it common? for people to experience this? The reboot ultimately is comprised of kind of two components. So one is this relapse idea that's really unique to reboot. So before we talked about acceptance and commitment therapy or couples therapy, those don't have relapses 
as a part of them. They, they don't view those as relapses. So the relapse idea is really unique to reboot. And that is you did whatever behavior it was that you told yourself as a part of your reboot you weren't going to do. The most common one people agreed would be a relapse would be masturbating to orgasm while viewing pornography. There was even a difference <laughs> whether you didn't have an orgasm, it was seen as less violative of a relapse. But that seemed to be one they very much agreed on. The one they had the most variance was what we might call infidelity. So having a partner outside of your agreed monogamous structure. And that was very mixed. Some people thought that was, would be a relapse of a reboot. Others said it wouldn't be. And the variance was very high around who thought that could be. So those people in our survey who had participated in a reboot, who had attempted to do these at some point, we asked them if they relapsed and then if they said they did, how many times. And it was a majority of the sample by far that said they'd had at least one relapse Typically, they had a fairly high number. I believe we capped it at 50. You know, we said if it's more than 50, we're just going to say it's a lot and <laughs> do 50 plus. And many went up to that. So they would say, you know, I tried over and over and over again, essentially, and continued to experience what they considered to be relapse events. And the second part then of the reboots are these support forums. You say, you know, to help you stay abstinent, you should go seek out your peers or pay us as coaches to help you avoid these relapse events. And so that's where we see in study a lot of the folks who are working on strategies around how do I get myself to stop this? You know, what should I do to help myself stop this? And a lot of the forums use things like self-harm and shaming to stop those. They'll say, you know, punch yourself in the genitals to stop it or post a picture of yourself to shame yourself if you get caught doing this. And so a lot of folks would say that they would do those things, but I didn't see, there wasn't like a systematic way of approaching the relapse consequences. It seemed to largely be, just, I have to post and say that I'm shameful and depressed uh, that this happened to me. So that's the general structure is by far, almost everyone experienced relapse when they said they would try and most experienced many relapse events. That's Fascinating and disturbing. So in some ways, these programs are kind of like AA, you know, where you've got a sponsor, like, a, you know, anti-masturbation buddy who's going to like make sure you don't touch yourself. But then that shame component, that's different. You know, that's not part of other treatment programs that we might see for people who are treated for other types of addictions, right? So, you know, this idea that you need to publicly shame or humiliate yourself if you don't follow through with what you said you were going to do, like that's disturbing in part because we know that shame just doesn't work. It's not an effective way of really trying to change behavior. And going back to what a relapse means, in looking at your paper, I saw that some people even counted that as having a sexual fantasy. So just having a thought about sex was something that could lead people to say that they've relapsed and then could trigger that need to shame themselves publicly. So yeah, this is a, a really interesting and unique phenomenon, I'll just say. 
it was an early paper about NOFAP that wrote about it as a masculinity challenge. And what you describe is you'll see them sometimes refer to monk mode or different ways of doing reboot. And they use it to brag. They say, oh, I did monk mode. I got 90 days monk mode. And that's like, I didn't even think about sex. So it's really heralded as like, you are very strong. You are a very good man if you cannot even think about sex, if you can banish sexual thoughts. It's interesting. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Interesting, for sure. Now, when people experienced a relapse, what kind of effects did they experience? So what was the impact on them? So our study, of course, was cross-sectional. So we didn't follow them over time to see the shame experienced in the moment or anything like that. But we asked them to make the attribution. So we said, what do you think your relapse caused you to feel or experience. And overwhelmingly, people reported a very high amount of shame, which is not surprising because that seemed to be one of the strategies that they suggested for avoiding relapse in the first place was the expectation of shame. We also had a number of folks, so they reported a variety of negative emotions, being angry, being disgusted with themselves, but also uh, there was a high proportion who said, I had some suicidality. And we had them rank that from either like some suicidal thought to extremely suicidal. And out of our, I think it was around 270 who were counted in this part of the sample, it was like 12 who said they became extremely suicidal as a consequence of experiencing a relapse. And again, relapse is not a part of any evidence-based treatment. This is unique to the reboots. And people are saying this required component of this intervention caused me extreme suicidality. I wanted to die. So, of course, we're very concerned about that. I didn't expect the signal to be that strong, frankly. I, I thought we'd see some and it would be unique and maybe we could find predictors for it. But there were a lot of folks who reported having some level of suicidality in response to their relapse event. That is disturbing. And I think further goes back to how shame doesn't work as a way of changing people's behavior and, in fact, can create these enormous psychological impacts, mental health tolls that they take on individuals. Now, if these reboot programs were actually helping people, one of the things you would expect to find is that the more engaged people are with the program, the better their outcomes would be. But that's not exactly what you found. So how did the men who were the most engaged with these programs fare when it came to things like their mental health and sexual function? We asked about symptoms in three psychopathology domains. One was depression, one was anxiety, and then in erectile dysfunction. And there had been a few studies before ours that looked at support groups online and found the more engaged people were, that is, the more often they attended an online event or posted in an online support forum, the fewer their symptoms that is, we might infer they might have reduced over time. We saw in NOFAP that they reversed. That is, the more engaged they were, the more often they visited the forum, the more often they posted in the forum, the higher the symptoms that they reported. Again, can't say for sure that that was causal, but what was interesting about it is it goes against other published data, which really suggests, you know, if you believe those other data and think that's helpful, this suggests the causality may be reversed in this case. That is, it may be that the intervention is causing increases in depression, anxiety, and erectile dysfunction as ever more research is needed. So this pattern of results suggests that these programs don't necessarily seem to be all that helpful and, in fact, could potentially be harmful. So why is that? You know, what accounts for why these programs may not work in the way that they're advertised to? 
We don't know for sure, and that's part of what our follow-up studies are investigating. So, for example, there was about one in five people who visited these support forums reported that they witnessed threats to harm someone else in the forums. That is some type of homicidal content. And so we say, well, what is that? You know, it, what is the nature of that? And so we're working on a content analysis of the violent posts to see what exactly is happening that people are being exposed to this. And my sense is we're following a lot of the old research in abstinence-only sex education. That is, originally, you know, we looked to see if that might be useful or helpful in reducing the transmission of infections linked to sexual behavior or reducing teen pregnancy, you know, these kind of concerns in the U.S., And now it's pretty widely known that they don't seem to do that very well and that education is more helpful and important. And so I think we're frankly repeating the same kind of abstinence problems in this new format. So abstinence, if you only teach abstinence from sex, you have shame. People engage in the behavior anyway, and then they do it unsafely. And here we have that abstain from masturbation, abstain from pornography viewing. It's not terribly surprising, maybe, that we might see a similar pattern of, you know, people just, they feel ashamed. And so instead, they're either not going to tell you or they're not going to get the information they need and going to experience other negative effects from just having their behavior shamed rather than getting educated about it. Yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting parallels that you could make here between this masturbatory abstinence movement and just the broader abstinence sex ed movement as well. Now, I know you looked at a lot of different things in this study. Are there any other key findings that you had that we didn't yet discuss? There's often an objection to some research that's been showing people who identify as pornography addicts tend to have higher religiosity. And the reboot movement tends to object and say, but we're secular. This is not a religious group, so that can't be true for us. So we said, okay, let's test it. And we looked at predictors of identifying as a pornography addict within the sample. And uh, I have to thank another research group because I wasn't going to add this predictor until they suggested it right before we uh, submitted our pre-registration. Narcissism is the strongest predictor of identifying as a pornography addict in this sample, which is unique and adds to our knowledge of who might be in that group from uh, previous publications by labs that have primarily been focused on religiosity and conservative upbringing. Uh, That could suggest a lot of things. Our measure of narcissism was very brief. It wasn't a focus of the study originally. It is now. (laughs) We're paying more attention for sure. And we know there are a couple of labs that appear to have replicated this pattern. So I'm excited for this to come out. But it really looks like the narcissism may have to do with You know, if I feel down, if I'm not being effective in getting the job I want, the relationship I want, rather than the incels who may say, you know, I I blame women, you know, I'm uh, angry at this outside group. They're saying, I blame the pornography industry. It's not my fault. They robbed me. They ruined my brain. And here are, you know, these, the women who perform for them, they made me do this. So they get, you know, some violent posts against women from that. Here are the scientists who are shilling for the industry. So we hate those scientists too. So I think narcissism and conspiracy beliefs have a pretty tight relationship. And so we're also doing some new studies around conspiracy beliefs in these groups. But it seems like the narcissism has a lot of a protective factor, you know, and kind of saying it's not me who's doing this or not being effective in my life. It's, you know, my brain has been hijacked, they use the word a lot, or somebody else is doing this to me, but it is not my fault. It's being done to me. That is 
absolutely fascinating and I'm looking forward to seeing what you find in your follow-up studies on this. So since this paper has come out, what has the public reaction been to it? <laughs> it was interesting that it got picked up a fair amount. And I always joke, you know, a lot of sex researchers, we get calls just before Valentine's Day with uh, media. I tend to get calls just before November <laughs> for the No Nut November asking about this. So I'm sure more will be covered annually when we get to that practice again. But the coverage had been largely factual, but also some splashy headlines. If folks don't know, we don't write the headlines. And so sometimes this, the headlines that go out with stories aren't completely accurate, but we try try to influence them as best we can to write things that are accurate. The groups themselves, of course, I was very curious. I was fairly certain they wouldn't change their mind. These are groups that are very in-group protective and have methods to make sure nothing untowards gets to their followers. It's the echo chamber of incredible proportions, but those forums uh, treated it as a conspiracy. Absolutely. It was, this is funded by the porn industry. This is all a lie. Nothing, none of this ever actually happened. And so we added that to our conspiracy paper. Thank you for the data. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting uh, to look at public reaction to a lot of this stuff and also press coverage and how they handle it. Mm -hmm. Now we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which is what you would recommend or suggest to someone who feels distressed about their porn use or masturbation habits. So I think there are a lot of options for support. I think how a lot of folks end up in these groups is they may not be able to afford or are shy or concerned about telling people about the struggles that they're having. And uh, if you can't afford to go to a therapist right away, I'd suggest checking other forums that are more likely related to the underlying problem. So that may be to do with depression, maybe to do with anxiety. Um, if you're having difficulty with pornography due to a couple's conflict, you know, maybe relationship forums would be more appropriate. What we're seeing in our follow-up research is there's really a tremendous amount of violence posted in some of the forums that we've been studying. And so they just really don't seem helpful and potentially harmful. So if nothing else, (laughs) I would go to different forums to what you think may be more likely an underlying issue for you. I think they're more likely to be helpful in general. You know, it's not that we don't want these guys to get help. I think they're truly suffering, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong and how to help themselves. And I would much prefer that they talk to a licensed professional. So if you don't know coaches, because they have no licensure, if they were to harm you, you have no recourse. They don't have HIPAA protections. They can tell anyone who they're talking to and what you said. So these are things to be aware of if you're trying to make decisions about where to get support. And it may be helpful even just to have, you know, an evaluation, a few evaluation sessions. Say, can you help me understand what's going on with my pornography viewing and what you think? is a good way of understanding what's happening with me. So I really encourage folks to get out of the echo chamber as best you can, you know, try and get multiple opinions from people who are experts, if not licensed, uh, who may be able to help you sort through what's actually going on so that you can find an intervention that's most likely to be helpful to you. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. And for individuals who might be interested in finding resources for seeking professional help, I do have a page on my website, sexandpsychology.com, that is devoted to sex therapy and education and has links to my recommended therapist locator tools so that you can find someone near you who is going to be licensed and credentialed. 
So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Nikki. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? I have a website on librocenter.com. And if you're academically inclined, uh, ResearchGate accounts where you can request and I will send (laughs) you all of my scientific articles. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 